Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Teresa Torres. Now, Teresa is one of the top product coaches in the world, and she's one of the people who is most impacted how I think about creating and bringing things into the world. Teresa teaches a structured and sustainable approach to creative work that infuses all of the creative decisions along the way with customer input. She's coached hundreds of teams of all sizes all over the world. She's also the author of the newly released book, Continuous Discovery Habits, which I think of as the missing operator's manual for product teams. But more broadly, I actually consider her book to be a must read for anyone doing creative work, whether or not you work on a product team in technology. And the reason I say that is because the framework that she created and that we discussed in this conversation, it's really not about products at all. It's about critical thinking. It's about decision making. It's about problem solving in a world that is always changing and is irreducibly complex. The genius of Teresa's approach is that she's discovered a simple set of habits that are a foundation you can adopt in your work to increase the odds that all of the bets you're making pay off. In this conversation, we talk about all things product discovery, yes, but we talked about so much more, like how to increase your sense of agency and overcome the obstacles that get in your way to becoming more creative and prolific in your work. We talk about career strategy, about how to choose opportunities that are the right fit for you. And we also talk about how do we deal with, how do we balance the unsolvable built-in tensions inherent to doing creative work. So with all that, it's such a privilege to bring you Teresa Torres. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Teresa, first of all, congratulations. What a week. Thanks for coming and spending a little bit of time with me this week. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. It's been a really fun week. My book launched on Wednesday and I have been neurotically following Twitter and LinkedIn because there's so much enthusiasm. It's been a ton of fun to just watch it. People get excited to receive their books and share their feedback and ask their questions. And after a year and a half of a ton of work, I'm getting to sort of just enjoy the response, which is great. I'm curious, you know, there's always, it feels like there's always a moment when I talk to authors where they just, they knew they'd like made it. Like they're like, oh my God, it's, it's really happening. And, and there's just this like wave of relief and excitement. Was there one of those moments for you? Yes and no. So obviously when you put a thing in the world, you're worried about like, are people going to be receptive to it? And I did have, um, a really great moment on Wednesday where Marty Kagan emailed me and he was like, hey, I know this is your first book and you might already know this, but this is the sales number to watch. And he sent me my Amazon sales rank number. And he was like, I just want to give you some context for this number. Like to break 10,000 is amazing. And to break t- under 2,000 is unheard of. And at that point, I was at 1393. Oh, wow. And so like he was congratulating me. And then by the end of the day, I ended at 324. Wow. Which is unbelievable, right? Of, of like all books on Amazon, on right? all books on Amazon. And then, of course, he qualified it. He's like, you know, all books get a big bump on day one. So you want to see where you end up over the next whatever. And I was like, I don't but care. Still. I'm just going to enjoy it. <laughs> Not now, um, Marty. <laughs> yeah. So it's that, that's been really incredible. Like mm. the enthusiasm and just people's willingness to go out and buy it on day one. Um, and actually, I sold more books on day two than I did on day one. So that's just it's phenomenal. Um, mm. It's a little bit scary still because people have to read the book. And then I think that's really where I'm going to hear yeah. from people and all the problems yeah. are going to come out. And um, like I've already heard from somebody that asked a really good clarifying question about my interview advice. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have to write a blog post about that. All right. 
Okay. All right. We'll have to bring that back up here in a little bit when we get really into the meat of the book. But we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the book and applying and all that. But I actually want to jump back in time, and get a little bit more of your personal story. So obviously, you, I've taken all of your courses and trainings. I'm very familiar with your work. What I was interested to find out was that in you talk about this in the book was you had this sort of like bit of a rude awakening when you came out of college and went into the the real world with you know this very human centered lens. And I guess my, I have two part question is the first one was you know I, I had never heard of this term symbolic systems, which is what yeah. you studied in school, uh, and it sounded fascinating. And I was just curious, you could tell me like what what was that and how did like what drew you to it. Because it's clearly influenced your whole like your whole journey. I'll start with what is symbolic systems, and then I'll share sort of how I ended up there. Um, so symbolic systems, a lot of schools have cognitive science programs, right? So cognitive science is um, how does the human brain process information? Um, and it's it's cognitive science in and of itself is an interdisciplinary program because it looks at um, how does the brain process information from a cognitive psychology standpoint, but also from a neurobiology standpoint. Um, at Stanford. Symbolic systems is sort of their version of cognitive science, but it's broader than how does the brain process information. It's how does brains or machines process information. So it, mm. that's where symbolic systems comes from, right? So the brain and computers are systems that process symbols. So they're symbolic systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really broader than that. So it draws from computer science, um, linguistics, philosophy, and then psychology. Um, and mm. actually, in recent years, they've integrated more of that sort of neurobiology as well. So that's That what, is fascinating. Yeah, so that's what symbolic systems is. Um, I actually had never heard of symbolic systems when I arrived. Um, I came into Stanford as a chemistry major. Um, I actually wanted to be an immunologist because I grew up in the um, late 80s, early 90s, was sort of my high school years. That was the height of the AIDS epidemic. I was super fascinated mm. by viruses. I was kind of a Mm -hmm. science nerd. I wanted to be an immunologist. Uh, So I came into Stanford as a chemistry major. And then I did my first four-hour lab. And I was like, hell no, this is not what I want (laughs) to do. (laughs) Um, So I liked the like intellectual side of science, but I didn't actually really like the lab work doing side of science. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I figured that out pretty early on. So then I was like, okay, now what? Um, Mm -hmm. And I had been a, um, I had already gotten into computers and had some exposure to programming before getting to college and thanks to my dad and I um, I didn't really want to just be a computer science major because I was I'm I was just a little more of a um, sort of heady academic nerd than that like I wanted more of the like um, less applied and more of the intellectual side mm, you want more theory and that does a disservice to Stanford because their computer science department is not just applied it's actually one of the most phenomenal theory programs as well um, but uh, I had ran into a couple of people that were symbolic systems majors at the time and just learned about um, all the different things that pulled from it. It just blew my mind. And I was like, yep, this mm. is for me. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, like I, I, I had to Google it before this conversation and it was, and I saw this thing on this, I don't know if it was a press release or whatever, something on the Stanford site talking about, you know, this incre- incredibly interdisciplinary program talking about how, you know, computers and the mind and language all integrate. And I was just like, like this makes sense for Teresa. I get, I get yeah. that now. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've actually done two degrees and both have been really interdisciplinary programs. And I, and it's, I just, I actually feel like that's that lens of looking at the same type of problem from multiple disciplines has been a really influential part of how I think about the world. And I think it even shows up in my product discovery philosophy of like, 
I don't really care mm-hmm. that you're the product manager and you're the designer and you're the engineer. Like we all need to tackle this problem from all three perspectives and blur those boundaries. And I mean, that's how real life works, right? We want to put clear boundaries on things, but they're not that clear. Yeah, life life's a little fuzzier and more complex than that as I increasingly learn. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because that is something that really stands out to me about your work compared to, you know, relative to all the other people in the in the product world or really, frankly, people out there who are creating frameworks for just about anything. You know, usually it's very, I don't know, I'm going to say procedural, Mm -hmm. um, almost maybe a little bit formulaic, like, oh, here's your cookie cutter. And you clearly went the other way and you said, no, 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 I'm going to go upstream of that problem. And I'm going to tell you how to like collaboratively think about this stuff, about solving problems at all. Uh, and I think it's almost like you're, you're, it's like you're, you're, you have this product management framework, but it's almost like your Trojan horse for like a critical thinking and decision making way of living. Yeah. I mean, that is exactly right. In fact, I would argue I don't have a product management framework. I have a problem solving, decision making, critical thinking framework that happens to apply really well to product management. Um, and I think that really is my, are my core interests is how do we make good decisions? How do we solve hard problems? How do we be good, strong, critical thinkers? Mm. And a lot of the like primary sources that I relied upon are not product management sources, right? Like I talk a lot about Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. Mm-hmm. And they did a phenomenal job of summarizing decision-making research. And I talk a lot about um, Anders Ericsson and deliberate practice and how do we develop our craft and hone our skill. And I talk mm-hmm. a lot about John Dewey, which I realize nobody else is going to read because he's a really hard uh, 19th century philosopher who wrote um, in a very academic card, he wrote a 150 page book called How We Think. And it took oh me, a voracious reader, 15 hours to read that book. Ooh. Right. So like wow. it took a huge investment. Uh, but to me, it was worth it because a lot of that book gets at the heart of like, what does it mean to be a good, strong, critical thinker? Mm. Um, so what I love about this is that like, I'm willing to do that work. Like I nerd out on that. I'm super curious. I love all mm-hmm. the research. Um, And then it's really fun to try to translate that to like, okay, I realize most people are never going to read how we think, but it's this really formative, important work that could help us be better at what we do. And so Mm -hmm. I want to play that role. I want to help bring that to more people. Yeah, you you really seem to have a gift as a, I'm going to say a translator between things. Like, again, you're sort of bridging that theory and application gap, but in a very translational way for people, which is a real gift. Yeah, thank you. That's actually one of my goals is I think that industry has really strong strengths and that we move fast and we experiment and we try a lot of things. But sometimes we forget that like academics actually can contribute to our world too, because they're doing slower, more reliable research. And sometimes like industry guesses over and over and over again, and we guess too many times because we could have just taken inspiration mm-hmm. from like, mm-hmm. hey, what is what what can we learn from the research? Um, yeah, and like it, there's a reason that strong bases of theory can cut down your experimental time. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I couldn't be an academic, I don't think, because, I mean, maybe be like when I'm ready to retire, um, because it's just too slow, and I don't yeah. want to wait, I don't want to wait 10 years before I have any impact whatsoever. Um, yeah. But I also don't want to ignore that world, because there's just, it's just so rich, and there's so much we can draw from and learn from. You know, there's an example in the book that's coming to mind right now that we can probably use as a, as a pivot point into talking, in, you know, diving into the material in the book. I remember there was an example you gave in there, and I believe you were citing research, more updated goal goal setting and goal theory research by Locke and Latham um, that kind of contradicted what most people think about with like, you know, the, the ever-present smart goals and yeah. about how that might break down in the way the real world works. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I already ruffled some feathers with a few of my reviewers with this feedback. It's kind of counter to what a lot of people think. So let's let's break this down a little bit. So 
Um, a lot of people think, oh, in order for a for an empowered product team to do good work, they need a big heart, a, a big hairy audacious goal, right? Uh, and, good old BHAG. Yeah, and then and then and then it needs to be smart, right? So it needs to be a specific number. It needs to be measurable. So we're talking about things like, you know, with the OKR model, we hear about you should set it aggressively aggressively enough that you're getting sixty to seventy percent of the way there. Mm-hmm, okay. Sure. So there is a lot of goal setting research that does show that if you set a big challenging goal, people will perform more. However, most of that research was conducted in really simple task environments. So think about like somebody cranking a widget on an assembly line, right? This is where a big, hard, motivating goal gives you a little bit of purpose beyond just crank this widget, right? Mm -hmm. The challenge is most of us don't work in that really simple task environment. We work on hard, complex tasks. And so what we've been seeing in the last 10 to 20 years is there's a lot more people starting to ask, does this same research hold up when we're talking about teams that work on hard problems? Mm-hmm. And the answer is only sometimes. So mm-hmm. if you're a team and you have a complex task and you have a successful strategy for how to tackle that task, then that same hard, challenging goal is motivating. Right. It's just like cranking the widget. You know what you need to do. There's more complexity there, but you have a strategy for how to go after it. If you're starting with a goal and it's completely unknown and you still need to identify the strategies, then the research, it's still early, but the research is starting to suggest that that big challenging goal is actually more problematic than it is helpful. And it's because Mm -hmm. we don't want you running hard after something until we know that you've identified the right strategy to get there. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit like you have to find the path to run on before you can run hard down the path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I advise that makes the, sense. what I advise in the book, the way that I translate this to product work is if you're working on an outcome for the very first time and you have no idea what's going to move that outcome, you don't want to run as fast as you can. You actually want to slow down, try a lot of different things until you start to find the strategies that are going to work. And then once you can identify those strategies, then you can set that big aggressive goal. So I encourage teams to set sort of a learning goal in the beginning mm-hmm. um, and then set a performing goal once they've started to identify the strategies that work. And the reason why I got pushback on this is that some people interpret learning goal as like, oh, just go off and do research and we'll see what you find. Mm. But that's not what I mean. Like I put in the book, really, the learning goal should be go map out the opportunity space. Take some time to figure out What's your strategy for reaching this outcome? And I do think when a team works on an outcome for the very first time, we need to give them a little bit of leeway to do that. And that doesn't have to be a whole quarter. Like I never want to see a team go a whole quarter without shipping something, but they Mm -hmm. do need a little bit of runway to get behind it and say, okay, how am I going to reach this outcome? So this is perfect. And I'm really loving the foundation you're laying down here, but let's push pause for a second and like back up one step and just lay down sort of a quick conceptual foundation around discovery, continuous discovery, just in case the listener hasn't encountered those ideas before. So I know you have a particular definition you like. So in your words, what is product discovery and especially what is continuous product discovery? Yeah. So product discovery, it's a little bit of jargon, but I actually think it's helpful jargon. So a product team is responsible for shipping a product that creates value for the customer and for the business, right? That's their job. In in doing that, there's two sets of activities that they're doing. They're making decisions about what to build. We call that discovery. And then they're writing code, shipping code, maintaining code, all the work that's required to support a production quality product. We call that delivery. 
I think the reason why that distinction has become so powerful is because a lot of companies hyper focus on delivery. We underemphasize discovery. But really, discovery is, I think, um, if not equally important, more important, right? If we build the mm. wrong things, it doesn't really matter. How, that waste. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how well it's written. Um, mm-hmm. So we're seeing a bigger and bigger emphasis on discovery. Now, a lot of business still works from a project mindset where we kick off a project, we do some research, we go build it, we ship it, we hope it's the right thing. And then after we ship it, we find out it's not the right thing. Or really late in the process, before we build it, we learn it's not the right thing and it's too late to kind of adapt and adjust. So Mm -hmm. building on this discovery is the decisions we're making about what to build. Continuous discovery is how do we continuously get feedback from our customers while we're making all of those decisions so that we don't just get the big decisions right, but we get all the daily and weekly decisions right as well. Um, Mm. So my definition is um, continuous discovery is at a minimum weekly touch points with customers by the team building the product where they're conducting small research activities in pursuit of a clear desired outcome. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you for making it so clear. Um, and I really like the at minimum once a week, by the way, because yeah. I think a lot of people think, oh, once a week, we're good. But it's like, well, you know, the best teams are doing a lot more than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're competing with them, you might want to think, rethink your goal. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about what the Keystone habit here. There's, there's, you've identified one habit that really unlocks this whole situation. Yeah. And this is, uh, there's, not, there's no science behind this. So I can't like say I've, I've proven this, but this is just from observation of working with many, many, many teams. Um, continuous discovery can feel overwhelming. There's all these things that we should be doing. We should be talking to our customers. We should be testing our assumptions. We should be A-B testing. We should be usability testing. And a lot of teams get really quickly overwhelmed with where do we start. And what I've observed is that teams that just talk to their customers every week, they literally do one interview a week, um, start to naturally do those other things. Mm. And the reason for this is that As product people, when we're not talking to our customers, we spend all of our time thinking about our products. We start to feel like, oh, we know exactly what we need to build. And if we don't have this feedback loop where we're constantly talking to our customers, we start to deviate. So our customers think Mm. about our product one way. And the the less time we spend with them, we start to think about our products different from our customers. And so just having this weekly cadence of customer interactions helps to pull us back and see where we're deviating. And the more mm. awareness we have around like, oh, I'm actually thinking about this different from you, the more we start to realize like, oh, I should test this idea. I should prototype this. Oh, I'm making this assumption. Maybe I should see if that's right. And so just starting with go talk to a customer every week will help pull you in the direction of doing all these other things. Mm, yeah, I, I really like that because it gives people one clear place to start. And that is so helpful when you're when someone's trying to take on a, a, a big new change or what at yeah. least what feels like a big new change, even though in reality, it's actually it can be much more lightweight, which is fantastic. As we said just a few minutes ago, this is really a critical thinking, decision-making, problem-solving framework that just happens to fit really, really well with the nature of building things and putting them in the world. Talk to me a little bit about how this framework looks differently in different contexts. Yeah, so the framework was really developed in a lot of different contexts. So I've worked with teeny tiny startups where there's just two founders, and I've worked with really large multinational companies where they have hundreds of thousands of employees. I've worked in a variety of industries. I've worked with teams that are B2B, B2C, B2B2C, every combination you could possibly imagine. All the letters. Um, Right, all the letters. (laughs) 
Um, and it's really held up really well in all those contexts. And again, I think it's because it's really grounded in problem solving and decision making. There's tweaks you have to make, right? Um, depending on who your audience is, it's going to change how you recruit them. Um, depending on your um, iteration cycles, it's going to d- influence how you test your assumptions. What's nice about di- digital products, particularly web-based digital products, we can get changes live really fast. If you're on-prem software, that's not the case. If you're hardware, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So we got to be more creative about how we test our assumptions, but I don't think the process changes. In fact, um, I'm going to go broader than just product. I teach a course at Northwestern University as part of their learning and organizational change program in their school of social, in their school of education and social policy. Most mm. of the students in that program are either um, people that are um, consultants from the big four consulting firms or they're HR practitioners working on challenges mm. like employee engagement or creating and sharing knowledge in an organization. Mm. Um, and we teach the exact same process. So if you're an HR person and you're working on employee engagement, we teach you to set an outcome, right? And increase the satisfaction of employees at the company. Then we teach you to go out and interview current employees about what's the current state and to map out the opportunity space. And then your solutions are not going to be products. They're probably going to be programs and initiatives, but it's still the same exact process. They they take their solution ideas. They break them up into underlying assumptions. They quickly attest them. Um, and we've had to make very few adaptations to the curriculum to make it work in that context. And most of the ad- adaptations are just language changes. So we don't talk about testing with your users. We talk about testing with your employees or with your constituents. Um, but mm. there's not big substantial changes. It's the exact same process. That's actually fantastic. So, so have you, have you found, I'm just curious, have you found anywhere it, it didn't work? Um, there is a specific stage where it works. Like, Andrew, I know you and I have had this conversation quite a bit about, like, if I'm a brand new company, I don't have a product yet, how do I start with this? Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there's some sort of prerequisites that have to be in place before you kick off this sort of discovery mm-hmm. process. And that's the two things that I want to see in place is you have to have a clear definition of your who. So if it's a product, what customer segment are you going after? If it's an internal um, company challenge, it's what, what employee segment or what employee group are you going after? And you have to have a clear idea of the value proposition. Mm. And they can be a theory, right? You can still be testing them. But without at least those two things in place, it's a little bit hard to even set an outcome, mm-hmm. right? And so this process kicks off with we need to set an outcome. What does success look like? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and I know you know you and I have had that conversation a couple of times offline, um, which I really appreciate, by the way. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've sort of seen a similar thing. The way I've been thinking about it lately, I was working with a team just the other week on this, and we, we kind of hit the point you're talking about, and we realized that like, oh, this. And after our conversation, we realized like, oh, this is actually because it was a brand new product. This is existing kind of on three levels. Like we're kind of working across three levels of abstraction simultaneously. You know, the, the sort of more most concrete level is the opportunity solution tree and all the most of the stuff that's in, in, your, in the framework and in, in the book. Then that level above it, which is what I was missing that you, you told me about, was the experiential level of the customer and really seeing how are we, you know, day in the life from A to B, how are we trying to change it? But then really what was missing was that top level at the business level of like, well, all right, wait, hold on. 
I don't think we actually know who we're serving and yeah. how, like, what are we basically trying to do for them that they really care about? Yep. Um, so, so that's actually, I, I find to be a, um, a very useful reframe. So thank you for that. One, one question, cause it actually, I've gotten that question from a bunch of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's come up many times in, in my conversations when you, when you're dealing with a, a team that's at that much earlier stage, right? Where they are, they are fuzzy on like the, the who and the what. Uh, at the value prop level. Is there a different set of tools you recommend that they engage with to really kind of nail that down? Yeah, so it depends on it depends on where they're coming from. So some founders are really customer segment focused, right? Um, they come in and they say, hey, my audience is this and I see this problem and I really want to solve that problem. If they've already validated that that problem exists and they know who their who is, they can jump right into this process in the book. That's a great starting point. A lot of founders don't start there. They start with, I have this cool solution idea. There's this cool technology I want to get out in the world. And it's a little bit like a solution looking for a problem to solve, right? And that's where I actually think they need to do the work to at least have a theory of who's that customer segment, who's that value proposition, what's the value proposition for them. And that's where I think um, Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas is incredibly helpful. And especially if you pair it with David Bland's testing business ideas. Because what David does is he layers on this same mindset of testing assumptions, but he does it at the business model level. Um, and I think that you have to have, again, two of the big boxes on that business model canvas are the value proposition and the customer segment. And I think in order to kick off this sort of product discovery process, those two pieces at least need to be in place. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for that suggestion. I'll, I'll throw one more out there that I've seen be helpful is um, the work of a guy named Ash Moria, mm-hmm. um, who runs a, a site called LeanStack. And he he created the Lean Canvas, which is sort of a, a the alternate version of the business model canvas from Osterwalder. And uh, I re- he has an approach that I really like for this early stage of, of basically doing a lot of work to figure out kind of who is the customer, like customer uh, customer problem fit, problem solution fit, and then trying to really validate the value prop through like offer testing, which is one of the, I think one of the many, one of the many, many tactics that uh, is in the testing business ideas book, which actually happens to be on my desk right now. Nice. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Um, so let's dive back in more into, you know, the, the, the context where this does apply. Like when someone's already working with this, they've got that figured out in the background and things are nicely framed up. So, you know, we talked about this baseline of continuous discoveries, like, you know, minimum once a week. So that's a good starting point to go for. But I'm really curious, like, what what does kick-ass look like, right? Like, what does just, like, the, the most badass team look like when they're doing this? Yeah, so I'll share a couple personal stories of me working Please. this way. So I meet a lot of teams that say they don't have time to talk to customers. And frankly, I think it's bullshit. Like, it really, it rubs me the wrong way, because here's the deal. I was a startup CEO of a company that was in the recruiting space during the economic downturn. So let's just talk Oof. about a company in crisis, right? Yeah. I was, a, I was a first-time CEO. Uh, we had two sides to our business. We sold recruiting software to employers, and we ran online communities for universities. Let's talk about the economic mm. environment of this company during a downturn. Employers were no longer hiring. They could care less about recruiting software. <laughs> universities were seeing their endowments shrink or their state budgets shrink. And they really, like, engaging alumni is a nice-to-have. So guess where we went? Mm-hmm. Out the door. So Mm -hmm. we were a company in crisis. As a CEO Mm. of a small company, I was our only salesperson. I had been our head of product, so I was now our only product person. We did have a designer. Um, We had to lay off most of our customer support people, so I was also our account managers and our customer support. I was doing seven jobs. In this environment, I still talked to 
one of our customers on both sides of our marketplace every single day. Mm. Every day. And we had two different types of customers, right? I had to talk to um, our universities that we were selling to, and I had to talk to our employers. And the reason why I did that was because I felt like it was the only way I could figure out how to make this company work. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, I was really fortunate. I was introduced to human-centered design as a 20-year-old. Um, it is part of the way that I think about the world. And in a crisis, that is what I fall back to. I'm just going to go and spend time with my customers and figure mm-hmm. out like how can I provide any kind of value to them whatsoever, given this crazy environment that we're in. So when I hear an individual contributor product manager say, I don't have time, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. Like I get that you don't know what this looks like and you've never done it before. Your problem is not time. Mm. And so it's just that you've never... So what's their problem? They've just never seen what it looks like. They don't know where to start. And that's my goal with this book was to give you a literally step-by-step guide of like, here's how you can get started. Um. Because I think that's, I think the real problem is that enough places don't work this way that the vast majority of people have never seen what good looks like. So it's less about, I don't have time and it's just more about, I don't know how to get started. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, that is such a great point because I, and I will say I, I went through the entire book already. It's fantastic. And, and as someone who had already engaged with all of your material, I still learn new things. So cool. for whoever you are listening to this thing, go get her book right now. It's really, really good. You mentioned that you got some clarifying questions and pushback about the way you talk about interviewing in the book. And I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. What's shifted there? Yeah. So one of the things that I recommend in the book, and we teach this in our continuous interviewing course, is to keep the interview grounded in a specific story. The goal for this is to increase the reliability about what you're hearing. So if I ask you, if I say, Andrew, tell me about your experience on Netflix. That's a speculative question. You're going to have an answer Mm -hmm. for me. You're going to tell me a lot of interesting things. I'm going to feel like I'm getting insights. But what you tell me isn't necessarily going to match your actual behavior. And it's not because you're trying to be deceptive or you're lying to me. It's just because our cognitive biases come into play, right? So the answer that your brain conjures up doesn't necessarily match your behavior in reality. So what I want to do instead is I want to say, Andrew, tell me about the last time you watched Netflix. And I want to listen for your experience. Right. Mm. So that's in the book. And that's a tactic that I teach in the anti-pattern section of that book. I wrote um, an anti-pattern is to ask who, what, why, how questions, um, because those are speculative mm-hmm. questions that lead to unreliable feedback. Um, mm-hmm. That's not entirely true. So when I wrote that, what I meant was I don't want to start the interview by saying, Andrew, what device do you watch on? Who do you watch with? Where do you watch? These are all speculative questions. I can ask those questions in the context of a specific story. So if I say, tell me about the last time you watched Netflix, it's perfectly fine as you tell the story for me to say, oh, where were you? Or what device Mm. were you on? Um, And Mm. I didn't specifically clarify that in that anti-pattern. I think earlier in the chapter, I do give an example of that. um, But that is something I I can further clarify. Yeah, for sure. So one of the questions or actually a couple of questions that came up when I was getting ready for this interview from folks in the community and, and in the audience were they were sort of confidence questions. Yeah, I'll put it this way. Like, like, how do you know? And they had a bunch of versions of this. But they were all kind of asking a confidence type of question of like, well, how do you know when, for example, you've identified your customer segment properly or you've identified the right opportunities or, you know, you've got the right tree, so to speak? Yeah. Like, oh, there was sort of a lot of this kind of question in the background. They're going like, Am I there? Am I not? Am I there? Am I not? I think the answer is you don't. You never Mm. know, right? And I actually think that doubt is really important. 
So one of the things I talk in the book about is balancing confidence in what you, what you know with balancing doubt in what you know. And this balance, mm. this equation of balancing confidence plus doubt comes from Carl Weck. He's an educational psychologist at the University of Michigan. Mm. And he actually mm. defines wisdom as the balance of having confidence in what you know and doubting what you know, right? Mm. Because if we just have confidence in what we know, we're going to charge after it and we're going to miss all our blind spots. But if we mm. only doubt what we know, we're not going to act, right? And so we actually need to balance those two things. And so how do you know when your tree is right? You don't. How do you know when you pick the right opportunity? You don't. How do you know when you have the right solution? Even if you release the solution and all your customers love it, you still don't know if it's right. You're still going to iterate on mm-hmm. it. You're still going to get feedback that there's problems, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I actually think it's less about like this, how do I know when I'm done is a little bit of this waterfall mm-hmm. process, check the lit, check the box mindset. It's like, how do I know when I can move to the next step? I want to reframe that. There's, it's not a next step. There's you're always doing all the things. So mm-hmm. a good continuous discovery team, their opportunity solution tree top to bottom is always evolving all the time. So you're never done mapping the opportunity space. You're never done testing assumptions. You're never done exploring solutions. You have to ship something, mm-hmm. right? So along the way, you're constantly making judgment calls about this is the best decision I can make based on what I know today. So I'm sending it to delivery, right? Yeah. And so on the, on the discovery side, I feel like it, there's always a lot of doubt and there's always a lot of evolution and there's always a lot of change. And then periodically we're pulling things, the best, the best thing we can to build and ship. Yeah. I, one of the things you talked about in the book that I really liked that I, I had missed before was this idea that basically everybody has a different appetite for risk, mm-hmm. right? And not just every individual, but every like team and every company. And so it's this idea, what I, what I took away from it anyway, and please correct me if I'm misunderstanding, was this idea of like, look, you're trying to de-risk it enough for you and your context. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of talking with um, Tom Chi, uh, who was the sort of you know co-founder of Google X and one of the inventors of Google Glass. And I remember hearing a story he told about um, he was meeting with Larry and Sergey about Google Glass. And at this point in time, the team that was working on it at X, the team had already really done great discovery work around Google Glass in like a kind of a industrial context or like a, you know, think about like maybe in surgery or people working in warehouses for sort of an augmented reality type thing. And it was a really good opportunity. You know, they could probably crush it. It'd be a several hundred million dollar a year business. And Larry and Sergey were like, nope, too small. Yeah. And so they were like, nope, roll the hard six, like go after the crazy big thing. Because for them, that was like, that's where their risk appetite was. And I was just like, oh, wow, like it's all relative. It is all relative, right? Like if you work at Facebook and their motto is move fast and break things, you don't need to test all of your assumptions. You need to ship something quickly. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean they don't do discovery and it doesn't mean they don't test some assumptions, right? But the number of assumptions and the amount of discovery they're going to do before they deliver is much smaller than a company that, say, is owned by a private equity firm that's more concerned about exploiting what exists than about exploring new new innovative solutions. And so mm-hmm. every organizational context already sets an appetite for risk. And then within that, every team has an appetite for risk. And even within that, every individual has an appetite for risk. And honestly, your boss's appetite for risk is going to have a big influence on how much discovery you have to do. So a lot of people ask this question, how do I know when I'm ready to build something? It's a judgment call and it's a judgment mm-hmm. call based on your context. And a lot of people are uncomfortable about that. They think about it as like, oh, if I do my discovery right, I'll prove this is the right thing to build. That's not true. 
everything you put in your delivery backlog is a bet. Always, 100% mm-hmm. of the time, what you put in your delivery backlog is a bet. If you do discovery well, you will make better bets. That's it. Mm-hmm. But there's still bets. There's still risk. Yeah. Reminds me of another great book, by the way, on on a lot that I think is great for product people and re- relevant to what we're talking about here is uh, all of Annie Duke's work yeah. on thinking in bets. And uh, I can't remember the name of the, the follow-up sort of workbook, but it's mm-hmm. excellent stuff for anybody who wants to you know, go deeper on thinking about bets and deciding things this way. Uh, it's a great follow on to Teresa's book. Annie Duke books are a great example of um, drawing from decision-making literature rather than just product management literature. Yeah. It, I, I found her work really changed how I thought about bets. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, I'm not shipping a thing. I'm placing a bet. Okay. How much, how big of a bet do I want to place? Like, what do I think the expected value is? What are the, you know, all, all of the stuff she teaches. So one of the things that, um, I love about her book is that when you're, um, when you disagree with someone to fall back on this, like, do you want to bet? So, um, oh. uh, I love playing with this idea and actually my, um, partner and I have, have, have started doing this where like, we'll be discussing, okay. we'll be discussing something in the news and we'll disagree and it will just turn into, well, do you want to bet? And this comes from the thinking and bets idea, right? Because it's like, as soon as you frame it as, do you want to bet your evaluation brain kicks in? Like, do I really want to bet? And we did this mm. last year. So when COVID hit, I started mm. to freak out about the impact of COVID on my business because a lot of companies immediately cut their training budgets, right? And so we mm-hmm. saw training drop to zero almost overnight. And I was mm. I, there was about six weeks where I was totally freaked out. And my partner mm-hmm. kept saying, um, "I think you're going to have the best year you ever you're, you've ever had. Like you're going to you're going to figure it out. You're so good at experimenting. It's going to be fine." And of course, I was in panic mode and like, no, it's going to be the worst year ever. I'm going to have to let my employee go. It's going to be awful. And he said, do you want to bet? (laughs) And we bet on it. And we bet a really nice steak dinner at a high-end restaurant. And what was great for me was I was either going to have the best year of my for my business or I was going to get a really nice steak dinner. So, of course, I said, yes, I want to bet. I lost the bet. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm, was, I'm so glad you did. And I was perfectly okay losing that bet. And then, and then while we were at the steak dinner, he said, "So are we renewing the bet?" Uh, and I have not yet decided if we're renewing the bet. Okay, <laughs> TBD. <laughs> so one of the things that I really like about uh, the way you approach things is that you're you're not just you know you're not you're, you're walking the talk, right? You're actually doing the things that you're you're practicing what you preach, so to speak. Um, and you apply this to your own business. So I'd love if you're okay talking about it. Yeah. I'd love to hear how you apply this stuff to your own business, especially in such a difficult moment like that. I mean, wow, talk about another crisis. You talk, you know, little yeah. PTSD from the one ten years ago with the education startup. Um, so I'm curious. Okay, so first of all, here's what I love. My startup experience. It was that being the CEO of that company. I've been at the company for five years. I was CEO for two and a half. Um, It was the hardest thing I've ever done. But Mm. my takeaway, I learned some really important lessons that makes running my business today really easy, even in a crisis. So one, Mm. I learned that even in a crisis, I'm fine, right? Now, some of that is I'm really fortunate and I've had a really good tech job for a long time and financially I can can survive some some rough months. Um, So that's the first thing is that like even in the middle of a horrible crisis, I personally am still fine. Like I can keep my head. Mm-hmm. It's going to be okay. Um, the other thing is, is that like you talk about how I walk my talk. That's because this book is who I am, right? Mm-hmm. Like it really is an expression of who I am. It's how I think. Um, a lot of these frameworks and tools were me externalizing how I intuitively thought about things. 
And of course, I learned from peers and I borrowed things. And you'll see like some of David Blaine's work is in there and some of Jeff Patton's work is in there. So like I, I really it's it's this is the way I think about the world. Um, so how do I use this in my own business and even in, in a time of crisis? So at the time that COVID hit, the vast majority of my revenue came from my 12-week coaching program. So my 12-week coaching program is um, I work with a product trio. We meet every week for 12 weeks. They have a curriculum that they go through. Um, they do team activities. And then in our coaching sessions, I give them feedback. That's a big ticket item. Your head of product mm-hmm. is paying for it. I'm contracting with large companies. Um, that's the revenue, by the way, which was like 80% of my revenue that went to zero almost overnight. And this was a mm. program that I had had like a two year waiting list for, right? So it mm. had been a high demand, easy, mm-hmm. easy thing to sell. This is your cash cow. Low capacity, right? I can't work with that many teams, but it just paid the bills. Um, and then it dropped to zero overnight. However, thankfully, I had already been planting other seeds. So I had this, I'd been doing this coaching business for many years. Um, I also have a popular blog, Product Talk, and I was hearing from lots of individuals and they would email me and say something like, I really love your content. I want to learn from you. My company is never going to invest in coaching. What options do you have for me? So before COVID, I had already started experimenting with online courses. I had already started experimenting with in-person workshops trying to meet the need of the individual who wasn't going to work at a company where they were going to invest in coaching. And so in three years before COVID started, I launched the continuous interviewing course. And I already had three years of experience in the online course business. And what did that look like? And how did that work? I also, unfortunately, was a year into the public events business, which obviously was decimated Mm -hmm. by COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. so So it's March, COVID hits. Things are shutting down. I'm starting to see that literally everybody I talk to in the sales process is saying we're kicking the can down the road. Um, and I basically just yeah. sat down and said, okay, I looked at, I have an opportunity solution tree for my business. Um, this past January, I shared a little bit of it publicly. Um, at a high level, there's a branch for that head of product that's like, I need to train my team. And then there's that branch for that individual of like, I don't work at that company, but I want to develop my skills. Mm-hmm. My business had been heavy on that head of product side. That's where most of my revenue was coming from. But I had a lot of demand on the individual side. And so when COVID hit, I just said, okay, what I'm seeing in the marketplace is the head of product is not ready to spend money. I need to focus on the individual. And so what did Mm -hmm. I do? Um, I just started talking to students in my community and I started looking at what they were asking for. And I went back to literally every email I've ever received from individuals and started looking at the language they were using and what they were asking for and what their needs were. Um, And so... I started to build out that branch and to really understand what are the needs of the individual. I also knew that the whole world was changing really fast and had to run a lot of experiments. And so Mm. I did. I launched my early readers program, which was a $20 a month program, teeny tiny spend, right? Um, That, but what, and then also what was beautiful about that program was it also gave me feedback on my book as I wrote it. So the way that program worked was you paid $20 a month. You got a chapter of the book as I wrote it. And then we did a call every month to get feedback. Uh, that was really successful. I sold it for two weeks. I had an enrollment w- window of two weeks and I got 60 people. So what question were you trying to answer with that experiment? Uh, would individuals spend $20 out of their own pocket every month? So I had never done oh, okay. a subscription program before, right? Uh, and I was trying to test the assumption of, 
Are people, are there too many subscriptions? Will people still pay for this? Um, and then I was also trying to figure out how to have a stronger feedback loop as I wrote the book. Um, and that program yeah. I would say was successful. I told, I sold 60 seats in two weeks. Um, it brought in a little bit of revenue that turned out to be about 800 to a thousand dollars a month. Um, it ended up being a loss because I spent more money on that servicing the program than I did. Uh, <laughs> but it was fine. Um, but I yeah. did, it was a really good, um, assumption test. So I did validate mm-hmm. people would spend $20 a month. Um, the vast majority of the people in the program stayed through the whole thing. In fact, are still members today. Um, that actually led to us launching the membership program that we just launched this week. That's coupled with the book. Um, other experiments that we ran, I launched two new courses. So we launched Opportunity Mapping and Defining Outcomes. Uh, one of those courses I created. So Opportunity Mapping, I created. It's just like continuous interviewing, exact same model. And I was really just testing, would past students buy more courses? Would it bring in mm-hmm. new types of people? Can we get this back and forth movement between classes? So like you, you took multiple courses. That was an open mm-hmm. question. Will people take multiple courses? Um, and then I also launched Defining Outcomes with my partner, Hope. So she designed that course. And I was just testing, can I scale this by inviting other people to design courses? Will the quality mm-hmm. stay high? Um, we launched, um, we took our two-day in-person workshop and turned it into a six-week masterclass. That's a little bit of a different experiment. So um, that actually crosses a little bit of the individuals can pay for it. Like it's $1,500. So it fits within sort of that annual professional budget. Um, but we also see some heads of product because they don't have a big training budget anymore. It's small enough that they can kind of still send some mm-hmm. of their team. Um, it's also mm-hmm. live instruction. So that's a little bit different from our deep dive courses. Um, that experiment has gone phenomenally well. Uh, that mm-hmm. program sells out and this year I'll offer it 12 times. Awesome. Um, and wow, so, yeah, so that's fantastic. I, th- I think I was in the first cohort of that, by the I, way, because I was supposed to go to your in-person one. I think one. you bought a Portland ticket, right? So you were like yeah, in our I was first to to cohort Portland. of like, we got to figure out what to do for all these people. Here's what happened. I'll be really honest about this. Like I saw my coaching revenue go almost to zero overnight. I had about $30,000 in event ticket money that frankly, I didn't mm. want to refund. Yeah. Right. Because I'm already terrified that like I don't have any revenue anymore. And <laughs> I don't want to give the money I gotta back. I got to get $30,000 back. So I was like, how do I get yeah. these people to like still yeah. be excited about an online class when they bought it in person event? I think four people total asked for a refund and everybody else came to the virtual event. So it turned out fine. Um, we didn't end up eating any, we had a whole bunch of cash outlay on event venues and catering. And thankfully mm, yeah. we were able, thanks to force majeure in our contracts, we were able to get all of that money back. So we did not, nice. we did not take a bath on our virtual, on our in-person events in March and nice. April. It looked like we were going to take a bath on, on those events. Yeah. And it was a little bit scary. Yeah, I mean, I'll say actually from the student side, I found it actually to be almost a better experience in some ways, having it be distributed over time that way, because it gave me time between sessions to like sit with the materials and let it kind of percolate in my mind. And I actually found it to be, I felt like I, I felt like at the end of it, I had a better grasp on it than if I had just done like drink from the fire hose for two days. Yeah. So I'll share, we're not going back to in-person ever. Oh, okay. And the reason why is a lot, well, first of all, I get, we limit it to 20 people. Our, our in-person events, we had to do 40 because we're paying for event venues and food scales. Sure. And it's hard to do small in-person events. We can limit it to 20, which means I get to know every single student in the class, which is way more fun for me. Uh, we support it with a Slack community so that people can ask questions in between. So literally everybody's questions can get answered. Um, we see better learning outcomes because you're learning over time. 
I think it's a much better program online. Um, so mm. we're actually not going back to in-person events. We might for corporate events. So my, I teach all of our public events. Hope, my partner, teaches all of our corporate events. Companies want in-person events, so we might go back to in-person there. Um, right. But what ended up happening, so we saw all of our coaching revenue drop to almost zero. So I had a really small summer coaching term. It all roared back in the fall. So like we were overbooked in the fall. Um, mm. We saw our course business triple over the course of the year because all these companies wanted training for their teams, but they couldn't do it in person. Uh, we introduced ma- our master classes, which is a, a bigger ticket item that just sold out and it continues to sell like gangbusters. Um, and then we have this monthly subscription program that we're actually carrying forward with the book that also is doing well. So instead of like being in this crisis where everything was falling apart, we actually ended up with uh, way more diverse, diversified revenue um, and a lot of really strong programs and things that meet a lot of different people's needs. Um, and so yeah, this, awesome. yeah, so this year, I'm actually not coaching anymore. Um, Hope is actually taking over all of the coaching and I am focusing on developing our courses and building out our membership program. Um, And so we're sort of spreading ourselves. She's working that I'm a head of product branch of the tree and I'm working that I'm an individual branch of the tree. That's really great. And what a nice way to scale the business and start to have, you know, even more time to invest into making it better. And I will say, uh, as as someone who's gone through all of the things you just described uh, from the student side, Utterly, completely worth it and so glad I did it. So if anyone's looking for a testimonial, I fully endorse it and it's really, really, really good. Awesome. Um, totally changed. It totally changed the way I see the world and approach everything I do. So um, 100% I'm on board and, and big fan. You know, I know this is not your favorite question, but I think we got to cover it because my some people in the audience will will send me hate mail if I don't. <laughs> you know, we got to talk for a minute about the, but my company doesn't work that way, Teresa. Yeah. We got to talk about that for a second. There's obviously a million versions of that that you get, uh, whether it's, you know, oh, we're a sales led company and our, you know, we just bow down to whatever sales wants um, or, you know, my boss would never let me or, or whatever. How do you respond to these sorts of things? Yeah, so I have a chapter in the book all about this. So in the book, every ch- every chapter starts with a couple of quotes. And uh, there is a chapter at the end of the book where the opening quote is, but my company will never work this way. And it's attributed to you, the reader. Uh, and it is because this is the number one question that I get. And I told this one, I completely understand, right? So it's easy to read about or hear about this like idealized way of doing product work. And if you've never seen it in action, it feels like a Cinderella story, like it's a fairy tale. Does this really exist? Um, and here's what I've come around to. I get that the vast majority of people aren't in a situation where they get to work this way. But here's what I do know. Regardless of your organizational context, if you develop an outcome mindset, if you engage with customers, if you um, get an understanding of the opportunity space, even if you are being told, build these features on this fixed roadmap, you will build better versions of those features. Because what this process does is it just helps you connect with your customer and understand their context and understand their world and understand the impact on business value through that through mm-hmm. that outcome, right? So if your company doesn't work this way and it's not going to work at your company, you individually still have control over how you work in your company and adopting a lot of these mindsets and adopting a lot of these methods and tools will still help you build better versions of whatever you're being told to build. So there is a whole chapter that's just, how do I get started? Like, what's the first thing that I do? Especially if you're in a context where it just doesn't work this way. 
Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, I love that you talked about in that uh, chapter was this sense of agency mm-hmm. and how that is really, really core here. When you're coaching people, you know, thinking back to all the teams you've coached in, in those much more um, intimate settings, what do you see that gets in people's way there and how do you help them develop a better sense of agency? Yeah. So one, it's really sad that this is the case, but a lot of people are in meetings from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. Like they literally are. And then some of them are double booked and triple, triple booked. Like they just don't have time to do real work. Um, so one of the things that I encourage people to do is just sit down with your, a printout of your week and a red pen and start Xing through those meetings. You do not need to be in the vast majority of those meetings. This is mm. hard. You actually have to set your ego aside a little bit. Product people want to be in those meetings because they want to feel like they're important and they're part of every decision. But here's the, do you, Our voice matters. Yeah, do you really need <laughs> yeah. to be in those bug prioritization decisions with your engineers? Do you really need to be in all those scrum rituals? Do you really need to be in all those stakeholder management meetings? Some of them, yes, right? That's a big part of your job, but not all of them. And especially we have a lot of these recurring weekly meetings that frankly could happen over email or they could happen over Slack. You could just hear a summary of it. Um, so I think the first thing is take back some of your day. Get rid of the mm. and be ruthless about it. Get rid of those meetings that you don't need to be in. Replace them with emails. Mm-hmm. Replace them with Slack conversations. Replace them with Confluence pages. Whatever, however your company works. Um, so that's the first thing is just gotta get rid of all the useless meetings. And that sounds scary to people. They don't think it's really within their control. And this is where you got to rock the boat a little bit. Just how about don't show up one day and see what happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get fired. Don't get fired. Use your best judgment, but. Rock the boat a little bit. Maybe you got to email someone and say, "Hey, is it okay if I skip it this week?" Um, do that. Yeah. Do that. Don't skip your one-on-one with your boss. Yeah, do it a couple times and maybe then remove it from your calendar. So that's the first thing is really you got to create some space for yourself and not just discovery space, but thinking space. Like you're not doing your job well if you're in meetings at ten hours a day. Like that's just the reality. Um, so that's that's the first thing. I think from there, it's just um, some people have real big challenges talking to customers. And they get, they get, they let perfect be the enemy of good. So they're like, uh, they, they like want to go to their sales team and ask permission and get and like have somebody set it up for them and they run into organizational obstacles and they can't do that. And I just go, mm-hmm. Hey, look, your, um, your customers are doctors. Do you have, do you know any doctors? Right. And they're always, always, they're like, yes, I know a doctor. Mm-hmm. Cool. Why don't you just start by talking to that doctor? Oh, well, they're not, they don't use our product. I'm like, okay, but mm. your product is a badge that lets them unlock a workstation. Even if they don't use your product, do you think they do use a badge to unlock a workstation? Because uh, they're a doctor. Like, they do that. Um, it's a thing. So talk to them, right? Um, and so that's a little bit of it of, like, you can find somebody to talk to. Even if you have to reach out on your LinkedIn network, even if they're not a customer, even if it's not perfect, start somewhere. And here's mm-hmm. the thing, like you talk to the first person, you'd be like, hey, do you know other people like you I can talk to? And now you can find a second yep. person to talk to. Um, and eventually with time, you can start to share with the people in your organization that you're getting resistance from, like, hey, I talked to this doctor, here's what I learned. And they can mm-hmm. start to see the value of it. Um, and a lot of that resistance is just fear of the unknown. So the more that you can help mm-hmm. them see, like, here's what I'm planning to do, that resistance goes away. Um, so that's, yeah. that's the other thing is, um, and that chapter is really full of just teeny tiny places you can start. Yeah. And the one thing I'll say, uh, is I love that you called this out in that chapter and I'm just going to re underscore it from having done this thing and 
it didn't go well is, you know, you talk about don't, like, don't fight the holy war. Don't mm-hmm. fight the ideological war. Yeah. I'm just going to reinforce that one. I've tried it. and it, It's, it's painful. It does not go well. Yeah. This comes from personal experience. I just, um, I was a little bit like a bull in a China shop when it came to the ideological war at a lot of startups. And mm-hmm. I just, I really naively believed this was how business worked. And I just didn't understand how other people didn't think this way. And, Damn it! Let's yep. do it right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I know what this is supposed to look like. Yeah. Get out of the way. And um, it it never once worked. So after dragging out time and time again at many different organizations and learned really slowly, and then saw other teams make the same mistakes. Honestly, that's probably when I came around. Was when I saw other people make the same mistakes that I was like, okay, this didn't just work for me. It doesn't work for anybody. This mm-hmm. is not the way to convince anybody. And actually, I really yeah. think the best way to convince people of anything is to show that it works. So just start changing your mm-hmm. own behavior, have some success. Suddenly, people are going to be knocking on your door saying, how in the world did you do this? For sure. You know, here's a bit of a question that I've gotten from people and I'm never quite sure how to answer. So I'm curious if you yeah. if you have a take on it. Undoubtedly, I am sure you have had many a private conversation with somebody on a product trio, especially a PM, where they're really frustrated about this stuff, right? The company and they're they're trying their best. And maybe they really are doing, you know, they're doing exactly what you just said. They're like doing it first, leading it, doing it in their own work, and then hopefully others will come along. But when do you advise people that, you know what, maybe you should just find another place to work? That, do you ever get that to get that point or is there always a no, you can do it better here kind of thing? No, I d- actually advise people that often. Um, obviously not for somebody I'm coaching where their boss is paying me to coach them. That is a little bit sure. of an ethical conflict there. Um, yeah. But here's the reality. Like the best as an employee, one of the most important decisions you make is where to work. And I do think like I've been in situations where like I opened the book with a story about a company that I worked at where I loved working there. I absolutely loved um, our head of engineering, who is a peer, who is one of the best partners I've ever, I've ever had in business. Um, I loved our product and engineering team. I loved the problem space that we were in. I loved, um, com- I literally loved coming to work every day and I chose to leave that job. And I chose mm-hmm. to leave that job um, because I, I really had some really strong ideological differences with our CEO. And I knew that I had sort of hit the ceiling of how, what kind of impact I could have at that company. And even though I literally loved coming to work every day, like I'm really driven by impact. Like I want to work on things that matter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Very apropos for this podcast, right? Funny you're on this podcast, Teresa. (laughs) And it was just really hard for me to swallow, right? I just couldn't accept the fact that I wasn't going to be able to do the type of work that I wanted to do. Um, And ultimately, Mm. I had to decide to leave my job. Now, Mm. here's where it's hard to advise other people on this. I was in a financial situation where it was safe for me to leave that job. I knew that there were other jobs out there for me. I didn't want them. That's when I chose to decide to become a consultant. But leaving a job is a really hard decision because there's financial implications. In the US, there's health insurance implications. Um, There's family dynamic implications, right? That's a big decision. So I would say for the people that have that flexibility, Choosing where to work is one of the most important decisions in terms of how you get to work. And I'll say it's Mm. not just choosing where, it's choosing who you're going to work for. Because Mm. I get this question all the time, who are the best companies to work for if I want to work this way? That's the Mm -hmm. wrong question. There are Mm. no companies where 100% of teams work this way. We're just not there yet, right? The better question is, who are the bosses that will give me this space and empower me to work this way? 
Mm. So really it's about doing that homework and learning. Everybody's on a journey trying to get here, right? And so it's who are the people that are further along in that journey? And it's not who are the companies, mm-hmm. it's who are the bosses. Totally. And I'm going to uh, selfishly plug an article I wrote to help you figure what questions to ask to figure this out, by the way. So I'll link to this in the show notes. Um, that was very much inspired by a lot of conversations with Teresa. So uh, hopefully I've helped you figure out how to figure this out. So that, yeah, I'm really glad you said that because you're right. Career, career strategy has come up a lot in recent conversations on the podcast. Um, with different guests and then also, you know, community members reaching out to me. What is there anything else you really advise people to look for when they're choosing where to work next? You know, in addition to a boss that's going to give them the space and set them up to work this way. What else, what else do you suggest people really focus on? Like, like for example, one of the things people often ask about is like, well, I, you know, I need to be so on, you know, so passionate about like the company mission. Do you, do you think that's the case or like, how does that, where does that stack up with all the other factors? Um, I, I think it matters, but not as much as people think. So mm. I would look at a few things. I think primarily I would focus on who's going to be my boss. I think your boss relationship has the biggest impact on your work environment. Second to that, I would focus on my trio relationships. Who are my peers that I'm going to have to collaborate with on a regular basis? Um, I think that combination probably has the biggest impact on your day-to-day life. Now, mm. if we're getting into what kind of product am I building... Where I think it really matters is does the product align with your values? So if you're mm. working on a product that you have ethical concerns about, that could that will definitely trump those first two things. Mm-hmm. But assuming that the product broadly aligns with your values or isn't orthogonal to your values, then I think it's actually really easy to get excited about any product as long as it's truly serving a customer. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've worked on, pro- I didn't think I would care about recruiting. And I worked at two different recruiting companies. And I got to learn that recruiting, helping a company hire the right people is actually a really fascinating, hard challenge. And it has a really impact, big impact on people's lives, right? Like where we work and how we make that match is, is really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And especially at my last company, we were helping college students find their first job out of school. That's an amazing problem space because those kids don't have any idea how to find a job. Um, and yep. I would not have thought going in, oh, here's a space I'm really passionate about. But all mm. it took was conversations with people who are really struggling to find a good fit, either both on the hiring side or on the job seeking side. And suddenly this is a really rich opportunity space to get excited about. Um, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because it, it matches a hunch I had had, um, which is that you can get excited about almost anything assuming, and this is a big if, you can close the feedback loop to the humans. Like if you can find a way to close the feedback loop to the person or people who are positively impacted by what you're doing, I think we're all wired to help. And I think that will be intrinsically motivating when you can see that. Even, um, so as a coach, I don't always get to, um, it's a little bit dicey about like, what types of teams do I work with? Are they working on products that align with my values? Um, and, you know, if there's a company that doesn't align with my values at all, like I've turned down working with tobacco companies, um, mm-hmm. I've never had the opportunity to work with the military. If I did, I would have some big questions about, is that really what I wanted to do? Um, but I have mm-hmm. worked with some companies that are kind of in a gray area. So I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. I spent a couple of years mm-hmm. coaching product teams at a company, I'm not going to say who, um, that was working on um, products that involved selling your location data. Um, And so their, their core business gave them access to a lot of location data and they were looking at, Hey, here's an asset. How do we productize it? Um, Mm -hmm. And I, they weren't outright doing anything unethical. Their customers in their first business 
um, knew that they were collecting um, location data. They were incentivizing them. Um, they were rewarding them for in exchange for that data. But as I worked with those teams and saw to the degree how that data is being used, it was really uncomfortable, right? Hmm. Um, and so my role as a coach, here's what I can do. I can encourage those teams to test ethical assumptions, hmm. right? And so it's not that I don't want to work with those companies because I can still have an impact on the work that they're doing. And I actually think those are the companies that need to be doing really good discovery so they don't end up on the New York Times front page about the ethical things that they're, the unethical things that they're doing. Um, hmm. And so if you're a product manager at one of those companies and you share those ethical concerns, do you leave the company or do you try to positively influence the company? And there's a really fine line. We saw this in the Trump White House. We heard mm, a lot yeah. of people say, I feel like I need to be a grown up in the room. Mm-hmm. And we heard a lot of people say I could no longer be a part of this. Right. Yeah. That's a really fine line. And I think it's an individual choice. I think some yeah, people hard forget to ask, what are my values? Where are my line? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think on mm-hmm. the like, can you get behind the mission? I think maybe that's the wrong question. I think it's more about what are the values that matter most to me? And even mm-hmm. if I'm not behind this mission, as long as it's not orthogonal to my values, I can probably still do good work here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so this is fantastic, Teresa. And I want to go ahead and shift and kind of close out the conversation now with some fun rapid fire questions. Short questions. Your answers can be as short or long as you, as you're feeling. Sure. Um, so this is a bit of an odd one, but if you had to pick one thing, what would you say you know best? Oh, I don't know. It's a hard one. I know. I'm going to cheat. I'm not going to give you one thing. I'm going to say like, there's the like academic side of me wants to say like the decision-making research. The mm-hmm. challenges is that decision-making research is always evolving. So like, I don't know that I can say I'm an expert in it because I don't spend my full-time life staying up on the decision-making research. But I think as far as like what's influenced my work and like the rock that I draw from often, I would say it's decision-making research. I think on the mm. like really pragmatic side, I would say it's, really helping a team unlock this cadence, like Mm. being able to sit down with a team and and see how they work and helping them find that like first step of how do I get there? Mm. Cool. Cool. What is a quote that's important to you that you return to often? And what about it speaks to you? Oh man, there's this John Dewey quote that I love. People tell me the language is terrible and it's hard for them to understand. Um, And I don't know if I can remember it off the top of my head, but it's basically, um, it's like to maintain a state of doubt, um, to conduct pro tr- systematic and protracted inquiry. These are the essentials of good critical thinking. Um, mm. And it's, that gives you a sense of Dewey's language, like he's a little bit esoteric. Um, but here's the yeah. essence of the quote. It's, is that like it's, our brains want to convince us we know something, right? And the essence of critical thinking is to maintain that state of doubt, um, to mm-hmm. keep searching Right. And I, he uses systematic and protracted, which are like two terms. Like systematic is so important to me. Like I talk about, I teach a structured approach, right? That's really important. Mm-hmm. And then protracted, mm-hmm. when I read the book, I didn't know what that word meant. And I Googled it and it means for longer than you feel comfortable. And I just love that, <laughs> right? Like search for longer than you feel comfortable. Um, and so I feel like that quote just gets at the heart of like, it's basically saying, do the work to know what you think. And constantly yeah. for longer than you feel comfortable. And so I just love that because I feel like it's so rare to find that in the world. Like just keep doing the yeah. work. 
Yeah. I feel like that's good life advice right there. Yeah. That's not just good thinking yeah. advice. That's like for life, you know, keep, it's really interesting actually as a, a quote that seems to, uh, you know, talk about, people always talk about explore versus exploit. Like it's yeah. this, you know, a trade, like a clear, like I'm going to put one down and pick up the other. But like what I really hear in that is you're always balancing and managing this tension between them. Yep. Um, which somehow reminds me of, are you familiar at all with, um, uh, what is it called? Are you familiar with, uh, I think it's sort of a framework. I think it's also a book called Polarity Management. I know it. I have not read the book, but I, yeah, I'm familiar with the concept of like, um, and somebody talked about like the, 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 like a sign of intelligence is the ability to hold opposing ideas at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the polarity management framework, uh, I'm not deep on it, but I just want to throw it out there for people as something to explore. If this idea is interesting to you as a, seems from what I have heard from folks who are deep on it, it's, it's sort of a, a way to approach doing this yeah. uh, in an ongoing way, especially when you have these built in tensions you can never resolve. Like for example, do we, you know, do a product thing for the short term or do we invest for the long term? Yeah. Like that tension's not going anywhere, yeah. right? You can't solve it. You just have to manage it. And this is where the so. um, exploitation exploration distinction is really helpful. Like every team needs to be balancing both. Um, and actually in my business, this was really critical to me, right? Like I can exploit coaching forever and have a really nice life. Um, but I knew that on this individual side, it was important to keep exploring. And when COVID hit, it was really critical that I had done that exploration because I had other mm-hmm. revenue streams to rely upon. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah. it's sim- there's another book that has a really similar model that I also really like, um, which is the Alchemy of Growth, which is the Horizon model. So Ooh. Horizon 1, Horizon 2, oh, and Horizon yeah. 3. Yeah, I, I knew I knew the Horizon model, but I didn't know the, the book. So that's interesting. Yeah. I find that for most people, there is a person or a very small set of people who in their life made just a massive difference. And parents are the obvious ones people go yeah. to, but usually there's like a mentor or somebody like that where you just look at them and you say, wow, that person, like my life would be so different and probably worse if not for that person. And I'm curious, is there somebody like that for you that comes to mind? And, and what would you say you learned from them? Oh, there's many, there's many. And I'm going to go all the way back to high school. So I had two high school teachers that like, in fact, one of whom I wish I could just track down and send a copy of my book. So one is, um, uh, part of what got me super excited about science was my high school um, biology and chemistry teacher. So for the same teacher, oh, cool. I took biology, chemistry, and a second year of biology. Um, Elaine Preston, I think she's currently based in Washington somewhere, uh, just lit a fire of just inspiration around science and just, um, mm. just exploring the world and discovering the world around us. And also um, really encouraged me to as- attend this summer science program, um, which was one of the first times that like, um, her saying that to me and like identifying me as someone who should do that uh, really helped me see like, oh, I have a gift here. Like I can stand mm. out. And and that was really formative for me. And then the other mm. high school teacher was um, Harlan Walker. He was my AP English teacher. And what he did, which was brilliant, was uh, he said, you're all going to get A in this class as long as you complete all the homework assignments. But you're not done with a homework assignment until I tell you you are. And so what he did mm-hmm. was he made us write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And he taught us to like, okay, you wrote a thing now remove a hundred words. Mm-hmm. Right. And just like tighten up your writing. Um, and writing has been a really important part of my career. Like I think through writing, um, I built my brand through my blog. Um, I've gotten a ton of feedback. Like one of the things people say is comment on is how well written the book is. Um, and mm-hmm. all of that comes from those sort of fundamentals. I literally learned in my high school. English class. I never took a writing class in college. 
um, because mm. I placed out of placed out of it because of my AP score. I did take mm. philosophy classes in college, and I would actually say uh, my philosophy pre- professor Ken Taylor, who sadly recently <laughs> passed away young, um, he had a huge influence on my critical thinking skills uh, mm. because to write a philosophy paper especially in the analytical philosophy, like the sort of mind-brain area philosophy, um, you really have to have clarity of thought. And um, mm-hmm. those were classes that early on I really struggled with. And then I ended up taking three courses from um, Ken Taylor. And he has like amazing passion and enthusiasm. And same thing, just lit me up, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Prof- That's so fun. Yeah, super fun. And then professionally, I don't know. I, I've had a lot of really good coworkers. Um, and a lot of mostly on the engineering side, like really amazing engineers that like were curious and wanted to dig in and iterate, but there's too many of them. There's just, yeah. you know, yeah. So big shout out to all of them. Thanks yeah. everybody. <laughs> That's terrific. So, uh, in this next phase, you know, you got the book out now, you, you're kind of shifting into a new gear with the business. What are you, what does success look like for you personally in this next phase? Like, what do you want to be experiencing and, and how do you want things to go in this next phase for you? Yeah, this is a good question. So at the beginning of the year, I announced that I, you know, I've, I've run this process myself. The outcome that I'm focused on is how can I increase uh, the number of product trios that are adopting a continuous cadence to their discovery? So that's sort of my North Star. Um, I don't really have a way of measuring it. So it's kind of, it's kind of a weird North Star. Um, I have proxy ways of measuring it, right? Like I can ha- increase the number of students that buy the people that buy the book, people that take my courses. But of course, there's ways to do this without me. So I don't know how to measure that. Um, so some of it is just impact is like, how do I keep scaling the impact I can have? Um, but I always counterbalance this. So I always have a counterbalance outcome for me, which is, um, quality of life. So Mm. I spent 20 years in the San Francisco Bay area. I worked like a dog. I let work be, be all everything. And I just know Mm -hmm. that by the time I was in my early thirties, I was done with that. Like, I just can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. now, like, I do want to have a big impact and I want uh, I want to get this book in as many people's hands and I want to support people as they try to put it into practice. Uh, but I also want to balance that with I want to go outside every day. I want to ride my mountain bike as often as possible. I want to ski in the winter. Um, I want to mm-hmm. hang out with friends. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's an equally important thing for me is to design my business in a way that allows me to have a really balanced life. Um, and I mm-hmm. like to share that because a lot of people forget to do that. Yeah. A lot of people don't talk about it. Yeah. So I'm glad you are. Yeah. yeah. So, so in closing out, first of all, Teresa, thank you for all of your work. Thank you for being here. Uh, you're one of the most prolific and generous thinkers I've come across. So I really appreciate it on behalf of not only myself and everything you've done for me, but everybody I've encountered who's encountered your work. So first off, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, really a pleasure to have you here. Um, and just in closing out, what would you like to leave the listener with? I mean, it's going to sound obvious, but I do highly recommend you check out the book. And if you're if you're on the fence about the book, here's what I'm going to say. Go to producttalk.org. There's over 200 articles that are about continuous discovery. I've been writing about this for a long time, so you can get a sense for my writing. You can get a sense for my style. If it resonates with you even a little bit, it's a $10 ebook. It's a $20 paperback. And somebody once told me, you should never worry about how much money you spend on a book. Like it's a life, it's a person's lifetime of experience being shared with you just by the book. Um, and as an author, yeah. like, of course, I'm going to say that because I want you to buy my book. But as a voracious reader, hearing that feedback has changed the way I buy books. I used to buy mm. a book when I was ready to read a book. 
I now have mm-hmm. like 500 unread books on my Kindle and it's great <laughs> because it's my own bookstore, right? Yeah. Um, so I would say if even a single idea has resonated with you, a $20 investment is not a big deal. Just go buy the book. Yeah, no, I'll be a lot more blunt than that. If if you're still listening to this and you haven't bought the book yet, I'm angry with you. You should go do it right now. And then the, I'll add a second thing to that is that I know it's really hard for people to apply what they learn in a book, right? It's really hard to go from like, how do I connect this with the way that I work? Which is why we are doing a ton of things to help you bridge that gap. And the easiest one is we have a membership program that's literally $19 a month. You can cancel it whenever you want. We don't spam you. It's just meant to come join our community, mm-hmm. come learn from each other, get help putting it into practice. There you go. Well, dear listener, if you are interested in these topics, you would be well served to do everything she just said. And I highly recommend it because I already did that too. And I will tell you it's worth it. Um, so Teresa, again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, if people want to follow up with you, connect with you, how would you, where would you send them to anywhere you, you'd recommend they check out besides the book, of course? Yeah. So obviously the blog, um, I share my email address right on the, uh, right on the get in touch page. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, so feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I will say I get so many LinkedIn messages that that's probably not the best way to reach out to me. Um, cause I just frankly can't keep up with it. Um, but, but Twitter or, uh, email through my blog is a great way to reach out. Right on. Well, we will link to all that in the show notes. Well, Teresa, again, thanks so much. And congratulations on not only the book launch, but on writing a really, really good book. Uh, thank you, Andrew. And thanks for having me and helping me get the word out. Absolutely. Real pleasure. So have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners, and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.